live from Treaty 1 territory in the heartland of the Métis Nation, the place where the great waterways meet and the heart of Turtle Island. I'm excited to host the first Nuit Blanche Toronto podcast, where we find ourselves in the territory of Toronto under the treaty of a dish with one spoon and is home to some of the most diverse population in Canada. I'm your host and artistic director, Julie Nagam, and this is my seventh episode, Growth and Transformation. I'm excited to share stories from artists Camille Turner, Hawaii Mighty, Waishevni Shuler, and Joy Arkan. Our guests will connect us to their stories that transform space and place through each of their lived experiences. I'm just jacked to have one of the most killer rappers in the GTA. And if you haven't heard her lyrics and sick beats on colonialism, racism, slavery, and sexism, you better upload some of her badass tracks. Her vocals are on our intro beats with Odario Williams and a Tribe Called Red. I'm so thrilled to have Hawaii Mighty shed some light on her career and her path towards music growing up in Toronto. So I think I grew up in an environment that was very supportive of musicality and I think the responsibilities that came with that, so like being on time for your classes and stuff like that, rehearsing certain just practices I think I was exposed to really young. Living environment was, I, I would say also very structured, but based on different things. I grew up in, I guess, sort of East End of Toronto. I don't even know exactly what to classify it actually. So I grew up there for the first eight years of my life, eight or nine years. And very, at the time, it was a very, um, it was densely populated with white people, but we were the one black family. So the treatment of us as the one black family was, uh, I, I think, as you can imagine, there was a lot of racism in the area. So I think for me, I, I grew up with spending the majority of my time inside with my sisters and kind of like, there was that infused musicality because we were uh, taking uh, lessons every weekend and then rehearsing throughout the week for that next weekend. And then you have your award ceremony at the end of the year and you strive to achieve scholarships so that you can continue to pay for lessons. All of the distractions, the racism in our area, uh, from my recollection, so like looking back, I can remember our house being egged or our windows being broken or, you know, the N-word being shouted or, or uh, neighbors saying negative things. So that for me, or I guess that's what I remember. And I think my parents aim to protect me from that by kind of having me in the home and having me in a protected environment with my bigger sisters. So we moved to Brampton and I think there was a multiculturalism that was this breath of fresh air. And that led to being like deemed gifted, the very opposite of what I was seen as in the education system before. I'm now being offered this IEP and I'm given extra homework and I'm implored to do extra projects and do these additives, you know, that I was happy to do. And I was allowed to go to the park now and play basketball with my friends. You know, I my parents are still pretty strict, but there was that like real world, you know, social element that, you know, kids need that I was able to explore safely now. And I think that that's when I started to start to express my musicality as an individual. And I was in Brampton from grade three. So it, within those like grade three to grade six is when I kind of started to like get into like writing my own ideas and freestyling and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I spoke largely about Brampton being a part of my journey on my fifth project, Flower City, which was the product that, the project that preceded my most well-known project, which was my last one, 13th Floor, I wrote to Flower City, which is a nickname for Brampton. And I, and I did that because I think at that point, 
in my life, I felt like I finally kind of understood myself as a creative. And I felt like I understood that Brampton was a big part of that journey. Just because growing up in Toronto, there was so much silencing of what it, it's such a huge part of the journey, but I had to discover it outside of that environment. Uh, I had to discover what those toxicities were, what the damage that was done looked like. And there was so much, so much damage that was like hard to discern. And it took years of being out of certain spaces or being in different spaces in a different age, recognizing what colorism is, recognizing what racism is, recognizing what prejudices are, and then looking back at your origins and, and remembering the things that were set back early on and how that shaped your ideologies and your thought processing. And yeah, so I just feel like that's a lot of my journey is just kind of growing up like a very sheltered kid in a racist area and then moving to, to Brampton where it was a lot more multicultural and I saw a lot more people of different cultures. Space and place are such an important part of our identity and how we hold that knowledge within us. For me, that place is Manitobois. And for our next guest, Joy Arcan, it's Treaty 6 and the beautiful skyline of the prairies that runs for miles with no end in sight. I'm from Muscogee Cree Nation, which is in Treaty 6 territory in Saskatchewan. Currently living in Ottawa, Ontario in unceded Algonquin territory. And I'm a visual artist. I've been working with photography and more recently with incorporating language and text and graphic design into what I do. So some recent projects have taken over public spaces in various parts of Canada and also now in Australia. I have a most recent work there. So. My work with the Cree language, it comes from a place of, you know, where I'm from, my family, their connection to that land in what is now called Saskatchewan. And it just links me to them and to that place always. I'm always thinking about that in my work. Yeah, it was, I guess you could say, a commission for an exhibition here in Ottawa at Central Art Garage. I was given the opportunity to interact with the outer space of the gallery, which is inside a, a former garage, <laughs> literally. So <laughs> the, the outer wall is just cinder block and the inside of the gallery, you enter through like a, a garage door. So. I, I was given the opportunity to think outside of the gallery space. So I came up with something that I'm thinking about always in working in territories that are perhaps, you know, not my own. I've been living in Ottawa for almost five years and I think about it all the time about being, you know, somebody who's not from here and what it what it means to work in Cree language in territories that are not my own. So I thought that sort of informed what I would do with this piece. I, at the time, was thinking a lot about different actions that were happening across the country in BC and then in Six Nations. And I wanted to sort of create something that would speak to that, but also keeping it in my language because that's how I perceive things. And so I wanted it to be more of a general statement for all nations that could like find meaning in and it also sort of builds on some of my practice with language is 
translating songs or having my translator, Daryl Chemikis, I'll send him some texts and he'll send me back his interpretation of, of these song lyrics. So the song Never Surrender by Corey Hart was, was part of the, uh, the inspiration for this particular phrase, which in Cree is Ikawia, we got Bakatemo. So it's, I guess that it's multi-layered in that, in that respect, because we're talking about like land defense and, and land acknowledgement and territory and all of that. But I, I always try to like think about my place as an older millennial artist who's always been influenced by pop culture and everything that I hear around me. So I, I always have like different links to like pop culture music uh, in my work. The main reason I wanted to go with this piece, Never Surrender, in in the AR realm was because it was intentionally made for use, I guess, anywhere. So it made sense to me because it wasn't as tied to place as a lot of my other works are. And when I am approached or commissioned to make a work, or if I'm just making a work, I think about place all the time. And that's why I think uh, Never Surrender worked really well with the AR. Joy's Cree syllabics augmented reality work was so much fun to place anywhere. And to mark the territory with an 80s pop title, Never Surrender, especially as it relates to land back and idle no more movements across the country. Buried histories are part of our colonial and imperial narrative, and there's so much great artwork that confronts these stolen stories, such as the work of Camille Turner, who takes us back to the past and then into the future. I am an artist based in Toronto and now in LA. The work I've been doing, especially lately, has been about the gaps in history and the silences and filling them in. I always say that my work is about home and belonging because that's where I start. I start with with myself and looking at who I am and, and where I come from and trying to map that. As an, a person of African descent, it, you know, it's a complex history that I bring with me. And I'm here because of all kinds of complex historical forces that have come together to form me. I use Afrofuturism in my work because I'm really interested not just in looking at the past, but to use the future as a perspective from which to look at the past, to reflect on where we are now and to to think about, you know, where we're going. So I find Afrofuturism as a really important kind of a position more than anything. The ways that places and, you know, not just the city of Toronto, but so many places are now realizing that they need to reckon with their past and they really need to to think about what they're presenting as their past and, and what the foundation is for the future. 
So I'm finding that really interesting, that whole transformation, this kind of cultural transformation or spiritual transformation or awakening that's happening. I'm finding that really interesting. Like one of the places that I did a residency was Windsor, Ontario. And so much of the work that I'm doing now started there. I did a residency in a place called Bobby House Museum. Well, just recently, you know, the the curator there decided that they were going to research the people that were enslaved in that house. Well, I went there to do a residency, you know, on these people. And at that time, that wasn't even a part of how they interpreted the house. So I find it interesting that now they're interested in doing this work. <laughs> you know, and, and this is happening everywhere. I see like in Newfoundland, I did a, an Afronautic research lab, a couple of them in Newfoundland. And now uh, I know that there is more interest in, in doing this work and uncovering these stories. But when I went there, basically I didn't really find anyone interested in helping me or interested in even engaging in the story, you know. I'm talking about the historians and and folklorists. They, you know, they, they were very polite about it. Oh, this is beyond our expertise, <laughs> you know. So I find it interesting, this, this moment where, oh yeah, and Discovery Day, Newfoundland, has finally been abolished <laughs> last There's a lot that has to shift. And I'm really happy that this work is finally starting. And I'm I'm also apprehensive that, you know, sometimes when the work gets done, but it gets yeah, done no. in a way that doesn't shift power. <laughs> Our moment is so critical. As many institutions and structures have to catch up to the complexity of race, gender, and sexuality. As the status quo will not be acceptable, and the tables have turned with the explosion of global politics of racialized bodies breaking out of the shackles that try to bind them. Hawaii explains her relationship to writing and crushing it in a male-dominated rap scene. It ain't a difficult concept. I'm on my militant conquest. You got a million questions. I give you the context. I never ever ever been an open book but within my content i'm intimate with my audience i guess i'm honest and i was able to identify with that more and identify with myself more by way of being able to express myself being, being comfortable being safe staying after school and joining a basketball team as opposed to feeling like you have to walk home immediately because people are, are, are racist and will follow you home like just very different ways of thinking and then going to school in London, Ontario was, I think, just the last bit that I needed because now I'm an adult and I think I have an understanding on what life is and what race is. And now I'm in this uh, densely white area with people from small towns who have their own set of notions. And like that was just two years of uh, learning in a whole different way. All of that, I think, kind of leads to like the fact that my music ha has, I guess, some level of political charge to it. But then on top of it, there's the, you know, seven years of singing lessons and then you migrate to, you know, no more music lessons and then moving into kind of like battle rapping through the internet and that being my resource because of that restriction still and not going out in the, you know, the streets and actually battle rapping with people, but finding hip hop kind of through the internet in a way and through the radio and, you know, just not in the environment because of that protection that was necessary for me. And then the, the marrying of the singing 
because that was the origin, I guess, exposure that I had. So you also, you get the world experience, but you also get like the actual musicality experience, which speaks to the variety of genres that you'll hear on my music. The, the fact that I grew up in, in a Caribbean household, but I'm a Canadian born child, first generation. You know, speaking to all of these things, I think you get this amalgamation of, of what you hear on the music that I create. Yeah, as a female in a male-dominated field, yeah, I feel like I found myself in male-dominated fields a lot, whether it was on the basketball court or in a workforce, like the types of jobs that I had weren't inherently feminine, I guess you could say. So like, yeah, there were fast food joints where you get that blend, um, but then you've got like Long and McQuaid, where like I happen to work in the section with speakers and pro audio, and they just don't expect you to not be in the band room with the flute. Like there, there are this, these weird mental biases that people have and, and associations or distinctions that they think are associated with who you are and what gender you are. And so I think much like my experience as a black person who grew up in Toronto speaks to what I talk about in my music. But yeah, like me being a woman who raps and who I guess isn't hyper feminine and in some degrees masculine presenting, I think that that further puts me in a box that is not the normal, the normality and is not the mainstream, but then I'm rapping and it's the most mainstream genre of all right now. So you get this interesting blend of why people are unable to receive this really well-written mainstream sounding song from you and why you're not the right vessel for the message or, you know, why there's a respect factor that comes into it as well. There's a depression of women that has existed for so many years that when you bring it into a certain space, it can become even more ever prevalent. And so I think particularly in rap, it's difficult to, I think, truly capture. And it's a little bit better now than when I was first kind of doing it, but it's a little bit more difficult to get that respect as a woman because there's this preconceived notion that women aren't great at rapping, that somehow the skill of speech and poetry is like better from a man. And like, it's interesting because it's not even rooted in and something like the physical strength that's biologically associated with gender. It's like, it's literally like, this is speech. Like, this is, we're talking about speech. So it's like, it's based on the mental capacity. And so it's just interesting that we think that women wouldn't excel at something like that with the, with the preconceived notions of what women are even good at. Like, you'd think that you'd think women would be good at rapping. But yeah, it's, it's just interesting, those distinctions that people have in their mind. Can't say how many times I've heard somebody say, you're good, you're a great rapper for a woman, or I didn't expect you to be that good. And it's almost always rooted in in the gender aspect, uh, the distinctions in their brain of, of where you belong or where you should excel. So yeah, I, I uh, it's very interesting because for me, it depends on the outfit I chose to wear for what show. I can get, I can get a very, you know, I can get a very different reaction based on those choices. And because of the way that I present. I don't think it's like hyper-masculine or hyper-feminine on every particular platform. So you, you you can get different reactions depending on the way I was feeling that day. And I think that that energy is also reflected in the music that I create. So like the singing being a little more sultry with the rapping, sometimes being a little more aggressive, or maybe the singing is a little more aggressive and the singing is a little, or the rapping is a little softer. I can move fluidly in and out of those pockets. And I think that that confuses people sometimes. Like they're not sure what they're getting and they're not, they're not familiar with it because of, I guess, what they're used to and what is what has been presented in the mainstream hip-hop facet for so many years. But I also think for, for many people, they recognize that this uniqueness. And I, I think it's like this beautiful dichotomy, like these blends and, and variety, because music is about layers, from your musical layers and your harmonies to the layers of the actual 
production elements that are in the music, the bass line, the hi-hat, the, the kick, the snare. The, there's all these different elements and layers that make up this composition. I think being a layered person with layers in the story, it just adds to those layers and creates something that I think people really can appreciate, but for some people, it's just new. The layers of sound are related to the layers of our complex histories of civil wars and colonialism around the planet. The divisions between cultures, race, and religion has devastating impacts on families and communities. We get to hear from the talented Wyashevni, who expands on her practice and the augmented reality work she created for Nui 2020. For that piece, I want to create a wearable art piece that was in AR, and it was about transformation, and migration. So if the bodice in this AR piece has these butterflies all over it, and when you see it on your phone, it kind of breathes. So it has a, like a flow to it as you move it around the room and when it's static, just to create that flow referencing immigration and transformation. Yeah, so all my works kind of deal with immigration and the diaspora experience. I, in the images that I create for my installations, they're specific to my personal diaspora experience in that my family, my upbringing is from Tamil parents who lived through the Sri Lankan Civil War. And my work talks about how that upbringing impacted my second-gen diaspora experience. For example, in the iconography that I create, I like to reference both Hindu mythology and Buddhist mythology. So sometimes I'll create a lotus or I'll create one of the goddesses or one of the Buddha vistas in my work. And that references kind of like the civil war because the civil war was between the Tamil minority and the Sinhalese majority. And one of the, obviously like all civil wars, they will, there's a lot of divisions and it's like race, cultural identity, religion, all those divisions. And one of the main divisions, I guess, is Tamil minority is Hindu and then the Sinhalese majority is Buddhist mostly. And so one of the conflicts that arise is basically each party would like attack the temples or the monuments respective to each religion. And when I create my pieces, I use both images to reference that. Because when I create these meditative spaces, I want to show like there's just so many similarities between across these two religions that are in conflict because of a civil war. And because both religions are just, they're naturally just peaceful in like in their essence. But because of the civil war, there's this distinction between them. And in my work, I just want to unify them again in a way. Yes, definitely. Because because as a child of an immigrant, for me, there's one degree of separation from the civil war. Maybe I should talk about the Mandela and the column reference. So the Mandela and column form is a constant emblem that I recreate throughout my artistic practice. 
growing up in a South Asian household, um, I'd see like Mandela patterns repeatedly in my life, either in the home or during ceremonial family gatherings in the form of a kolam. So the kolam is a Hindu drawing and it's created using rice sand or flour, something ephemeral because it's meant to be washed away after the occasion that it was created for has ended. And the Mandela itself in both Hindu and Buddhist mythology is a symbol of eternal time. And it's supposed to visually capture the idea that in many ways, time and history repeat again and again. So my fascination with creating column slash Mandela forms is in the idea of past tradition. In Hindu culture, the women in the family are supposed to create columns for special occasions. And then later in life, their daughters will do the same. So seeing my own mom and other maternal figures in my family create columns, I was interested in creating them myself, thus passing down the tradition, but in a more contemporary way. So that's why I do it through thread and I do it through light to almost make the column kind of like a neon sign in a way, but still referencing the intricate nature of the work. So for example, I don't think I could create any with actual glass and neon gas. I don't think I could create the intricacies of a column because there's so many layers and so many rounds of design. But because I use thread and blacklight, I can capture that the intricacies of a traditional column, but also like have that contemporary all lit up look. So yeah, I like to play with both the past and present in that way. Yeah. Ah, yes. So I feel like Toronto is always in a constant state of change, even just architecturally. Whenever, when I've lived in Toronto, every single day there's construction. I don't remember a day where I'm walking down the street and there's not construction. So I feel like it's kind of in the city, in the actual formation of the city. So it's like deeply rooted in the city, this idea of transformation. And then just the people in the city, like people are always coming and going from the city. Even a lot of my friends during school, there'll be like a lot of expats that I would meet. And then just learning about their transformation from being a part of one culture, coming to Toronto, being a part of another culture. And then that changes my own perception as well, because that changes my own social culture as well. And that definitely impacts my work. Yeah, like that diversity of Toronto definitely impacts my work, that transforming, that constant transformation in the people I meet definitely impacts the topics I discuss in my work. Each of these transformations allow for our imaginations to flourish. And at the same time, cities such as Toronto continue to grow and shift at a rapid pace. Where there are millions of people, there is continuous construction, and our future is entangled with these structures. Camille's work for Nui Live was grappling with our past through the creation of our future. Oh man, that was so much fun. It's called Awakening, and it is a project that takes place all on a spaceship. <laughs> and there's a woman named Gloria Smith, 
who is a Black Canadian woman. She basically is trying to go back in time and stop transatlantic slavery. But how she's doing it is she's an inadvertent time traveler, someone who travels through time, but she doesn't really know how to do it. It just happens to her. So she's trying desperately to figure out how to travel through time so that she can stop the mechanisms from happening that would wipe out her people. <laughs> but of course, if she is successful, she won't exist. Anyway, she lands on this spaceship. She somehow is trying to travel through time. She finds herself on the spaceship. She can't even speak it by then because she's exhausted. And two people on the spaceship are intuiting what's going on. They understand what she's trying to communicate and they know who she is. She, they know she's this time traveler who's asking for their help to go back in time to stop transatlantic slavery. But then they have this dilemma. It's like, well, should we help her? You know, if we if we do that, then we won't exist anymore. And everything that we've worked so hard for, our civilization will be wiped out. But, you know, millions of our ancestors will be saved. And so there is this dilemma that they have to solve. So it was a really fun kind of project to, to create. But of course, it really gets at the heart of how much we are built on this history that has formed the reality that we're living in now. Some of the projects I've been doing lately are um, the Afronautic Research Lab, which is a counter-archival project, basically a reading room that I invite people to come into. It's a futuristic reading room. You come in and it's um, a dark space where you are handed a magnifying glass and flashlights. And yeah, it's, you're digging through the dark to, to find information because that's what it's like doing this work. I started off looking at the history of transatlantic slavery in Canada or in what is now known as Canada because that was my interest at the time. But since then, I've found that there are so many histories that have been written out of the narrative. So looking at, you know, all kinds of different forms of anti-Black racism that runs through really deeply in Canada, from the film Birth of a Nation, for instance, that was shown all across the country in 1915 and 16. So I have all these playbills from that film, these stories in the newspaper of blackface minstrel shows that were was very popular entertainment, both north and south of the border. So all of these from Canadian newspapers, Canadian slave owners, for instance, posting advertisements for the people that they claimed as property. So all of these things are in the lab. So people come in and they, you can sort through this information yourself. So people come in and they're taking pictures and they're writing their notes and, and that sort of thing. When I visually experience the Afronautic Research Lab, I can't help but get excited about how technology and the archive can work in such synergy. Just as the work of Joy, who merges language and visual narrative, she reflects on her connection to place and is attempting to bring this knowledge to Australia, one of the oldest territories in the world. Joy draws on the flow of life to connect the two territories together, to mark and map out her cultural knowledge in a new place. 
it was a, a commission and so I thought a lot about what what I should say to viewers in Australia, a place I've never been, and what the free language, you know, the responsibility of traveling the language over that distance and would a Cree person encounter the work and who I'm speaking to all the time. So I decided to not recreate, but repurpose an idea I had done in Toronto again, where I was in residence at Harbourfront Centre. And I was, again, thinking about making public work in Toronto at the Harbourfront Centre. I spent a lot of time looking at the water of Lake Ontario and I wanted again to address the water specifically with my language work. So that's where I did the first iteration of what became a neon sign in Australia was first an ice sculpture in on the shores of Lake Ontario in at the Harbourfront Centre. And so it it was speaking to the water. And so that's what I I felt I wanted to do again in Australia. So it morphed from being like a water piece into being uh, a neon sign. And so that's why the color choice is kind of this like cyan blue. And I think like the connection between light and water is, I think it makes sense to me in that way. I have one project that I was really excited to work on over the summer was for the new library in Edmonton. I was approached to create a new work for their Indigenous space within the brand new downtown branch. So I worked with the library to work on some new ideas specific to the space. So they were gifted a, a Cree name for the space. And so I was able to work with the elders there at the library. And it was really great experience because as much as I love working in Toronto, Australia, like Edmonton is Treaty 6 territory. It's very close to home. So it, it always just has like a different layer of meaning, and especially working in Cree language in the territory with which it, you know, is spoken. And the people that visit the library are, they're going to recognize their language in this space that is meant for them. So that's that was a special project to work on. And I worked with Dichroic film. So it, it's, it's supposed to like remind you of a rainbow. So the colors change as you walk by and it, the, the film is on glass on the windows to the space. As you walk past, the colors shift. And so it becomes a really dynamic piece. And yeah, so I'm going to work with a similar material as well for a commission at the Mackenzie in Regina. And it's the same thing. I'm thinking about the space and the land and who's going to be viewing it. And the thing I like most about working with syllabics is that it's like a reflection back on the people whose land it is. And and therefore, it makes them hopefully feel more comfortable within that gallery space so that they can see like, oh, I feel represented here. And then I also had a, another public piece work open up in at Wanuskewin in Saskatchewan. And that was also a, 
really special piece too because I remember attending the grand opening of Wanuskewin when I was like 10 years old and it was just an important time for for me to like just feel so proud of the place and the people that brought the grand opening to life with art and theater and dance so to have a really permanent piece now living there at Wanuskewin is really special too because it's very close to home as well. Our stories and connections to place define who we are and the politics within those histories that persist which continue to haunt us. Each poetic line that flows from Hawaii's lyrical riffs weave new narratives that locate black bodies into the forefront with a strong voice that battles systemic racism. I aim to be a representation of something that once looked hard to achieve or at times looked hard to achieve or that I know is difficult to achieve based on things I know I've dealt with, like talking to other Black women and hearing their stories and recognizing what those setbacks are for them. Even if I was able to overcome that, I want to also be a representation for someone who doesn't yet know that they can overcome those thoughts, that they can. And so I think it's important for me from that perspective, just the visibility aspect. People can see you and people will have opinions based on anything they see. And so I always want to be a positive representation for myself as a creative. I want people to listen to the music and associate good music with me, but also positive things that are hopefully progressive and pushing us in the right direction. And I think women being empowered is very important. With with and without race as a part of that topic, women being empowered is also such a huge topic that I think that I think that that, that absolutely has to continue. And so even if I haven't intended, because I can say I've been cognizant my entire life of my blackness and how much it, how valuable it is, because my parents instilled that in me, and I always had the opposition from the racism I was receiving. And so like I think that that's largely why I'm so damn proud like I was lucky enough to be reminded at every aspect that I should be and that's super rare particularly in the black community so like I'm so grateful for that but I was a lot less cognizant of like the role of being a woman and the gender roles like I just wore what I liked and I was always a tomboy and I didn't really think about it and there wasn't I wasn't really like engaging in sexual practices super young so there wasn't a sexual component to it so I was just a person like I was just a girl that wanted to play basketball and the guys didn't really get it and like it's just very interesting how I kind of had to learn that I'm a representation in a space that I didn't know. Like, I think I always knew that I could be a representation in space as a black woman, but not just as, like, a woman. And I learned that. Like, I learned through doing interviews. Oh, I'm oh I'm a representation in the male dominant space? Oh, I, did, I didn't even recognize that. Because I was, I found rap through the internet through, like, battle rapping, like, and it was all men. And they were all pretty much American. And like, I just, that was just, that was just what it was. And I, I don't know why I didn't get so wrapped up in the idea of being a woman. But like, if you, if I got wrapped up in that idea, I wouldn't have won all those battles. Like, I just got, I just listened to how good they were. And I just tried to be better than them. And so it was interesting how like being better than the boys, but I didn't look at it like that became this thing that people associated with me. Oh, wow, look, wow, that's so impressive. I would always do the same thing when I would do performances. You're so impressive lyrically for a woman. And it was like, oh, like, I learned over time that that was because I was, I guess, I my counterparts were men and I was learning how to compete with men. But I didn't have this internal distinction of the fact that I was a woman in that space because it was digital. Like, I wasn't even 
maybe if it was more in the real world and I was like like in rapping against a six foot one man, I would have felt that more. But because of the digital aspect and that there's this computer screen between us and a lot of these rap battles being audio only, I wasn't even seeing these people. Like I was just hearing their voice. And I was young, so I'm like, these are adults. Like, I'm like, really, really, the difference to me was that I was a child. And these were like adult, you know, adult people. So anyways, it's very interesting because I learned through my audience, through interviewers, through fans, that that's also a space I occupy. And I started to champion that more and more and more. It actually changed me as a person who struggled a, a bit with identity and feeling like I should be more feminine than I am and trying to adhere to the standards that society sets for me. And then I learned that I was actually occupying a, a space of opposition to that thinking. And that taught me to better walk within my own right of how I'd like to dress, who I want to be. I couldn't have said it better to be a champion and walk in the footprints of strong role models like all of our guests, to continue the growth and transformation that each of us take in order to move forward into the future. Hmm. So I guess I'll leave it there then. Thanks so much for listening. I would love to say Chimigwich, Marcy, and thank you to all the people that make this podcast possible. And tune in again for Nui's Belonging to Place. <laughs>